Rogers Business App Market brings together the right apps for your business and wraps it all up with Rogers world-class support. Microsoft Office 365 makes it easy. Whether you need to securely store and backup files, access or share documents in the cloud, collaborate with your team or manage your business from anywhere and on any device. Plus, with support from Rogers, you'll get everything up and running quickly. To learn more, visit rogers.com forward slash business apps. Scotiabank understands that business is personal and your business has unique needs. That's why we offer flexible solutions for your business banking. Create your own business banking package that works for you by opening an account online in minutes with ease and start saving today. Visit scotiabank.com forward slash small business to get started. Here to give you a first-hand glimpse into the future of Canadian business, it's Rivers Corbett on the Startup Canada podcast. Welcome to the Startup Canada podcast, a show serving Canada's entrepreneurship community. On this show, we connect you with the most innovative and entrepreneurial movers, shakers, and change makers across Canada. With day in the life stories and in their shoes experiences, we dive into the true grit of running startup and scale up companies and those driving the entrepreneurial movement. The Startup Canada podcast show is a production of Startup Canada, the national rallying community for Canada's 2.3 million entrepreneurs. If you are a regular show listener, welcome back. If you're new to the program, hey, don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes and Google Play Music and visit startupcan.ca to connect with both your local startup community and to join Startup Canada to access training, resources, and a peer network to grow your success. I'm Rivers Corbett and entrepreneurship is part of my DNA. Whether it's building my own companies or helping other entrepreneurs build theirs, this is my lane. Want to connect after the podcast? You can find me at www.meetrivers.com. Well, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Startup Canada podcast show. I'm just thrilled to have Gabrielle Scrimshaw as our guest today. Gabrielle is the co-founder of the Aboriginal Professional Association of Canada. It's an organization that offers services and programming for First Nations, Métis, and Intuit professionals. She was born in northern Saskatchewan. Gabrielle left Canada to travel the world and study where she learned about international business and policy. She studied in more than six continents. That's cool. And has experience working with a variety of industries falling under nonprofits, associations, academic institutions, and corporations. Well, the real gamut, that's for sure. She's a globally recognized speaker and has nearly given her voice to over 100 speaking engagements. Gabrielle is honored in the highest regard by our community as the recipient of Inspire's 2013 First Nations Youth Award. Today, Gabrielle is a full-time student and a dual degree candidate at the Stanford Graduate School of Business and Harvard Kennedy School. In today's podcast, we'll speak to Gabrielle about her experiences as an entrepreneur and what it takes to be a global leader. Gabrielle, amongst all that business, so happy you're, you're able to give us your time today. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. 
So let's kind of dive right into it. A lot's going to be talked about, but what do you want folks uh, at the end of this show to uh, to really kind of take away? So for me in my work, I've been so fortunate to travel across Canada, across the United States. And, and what I can see specifically in Canada is that the tides are shifting um, on a really high level. And I think that the Aboriginal community is a big part of that. Um, Indigenous entrepreneurship is on the rise. We have a very young, very growing um, population in the Aboriginal community. So I think that's a really exciting exciting thing, but it also has a whole host of, you know, things that we need to start considering across, um, you know, our businesses and our communities and our educational institutions. And so that's a, a big part of the work that I love doing and informing people about. So, but a lot of people aren't also aware that these shifts are happening. So I think that the community is growing and that the Aboriginal um, youth are a big part of that story. Yeah, I love it. Well, and so let's kind of get into that journey right away. What inspired you to become such a strong advocate for indigenous peoples? And can you tell us about your journey from northern Saskatchewan to the GA? Yeah. So, you know, in so many ways, I would consider myself a bit of an accidental activist. And what I mean by that is like, if you would have met me you know, 10, 12 years ago, I, I lacked so much of the confidence and like assuredness to be able to stand up in front of a room and, and tell people, you know, this is what I believe in and this is why I think it matters. And I didn't really have that. Um, but what it was, was I think growing up in Saskatchewan and, and going to school at the University of Saskatchewan. And, and as I started to leave my small community of 800 people in North Central Canada, I started to travel the world a little bit more. I started to travel Canada a little bit more. I started to understand that there were a lot of misconceptions about what non-Indigenous people had about the Aboriginal community and who we are and, and what we stand for and what our histories are, our cultures. And, you know, when people might say something that's a little bit misinformed, I, I lacked the courage to kind of correct them. That that mm. took me a long time. I think there was many moments um, in my life, and, and one that really stands out for me is, um, you know, I had heard some somebody say something that was, you know, quite frankly, very racist about the native community. And I didn't say anything. Right. My sister called me out for it about a month later. And then I realized, I'm like, you know what? It's not only the work that I do and the things that I say, but it's also when I choose not to say something that's also, you know, um, that's kind of in a way saying that that's okay to do. Of course. And, yeah. And it was, yeah. It was that realization about a decade ago when I started to start to find my voice and stand up a little bit taller and speak a little bit louder. And, and that has like snowballed in ways I never ever could have anticipated um, when I was in my small community, of course. But I think when you grow up, and this is true for really anyone from any community, when you grow up with like a set of circumstances or challenges that you face and you look around and you see your loved ones face that you see your family, you see your community, your neighbors face it. And you know that, that doesn't have to be the case, you know, it's just, uh, you, you just want to stand up and you want to do something. And so for me, it took many, many years and many, many instances, but for me to start to find my voice and it, it didn't happen overnight, but, and now I'm in a space where it's like, I can't imagine doing anything different. <laughs> I love it. 
Yeah, that is so cool. Well, ultimately, it takes practice, I think, to do anything, but to take that practice ultimately creates that strength, mm-hmm. and it all starts yeah. from somewhere. So, so uh, yeah, I mean, it's 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 those those tipping points right in your life that really kind of send you on a journey that you that you probably never would have ever guessed you were going to go on. But of course, uh, when you look back upon, you're you're happy that that tipping point situation or, or circumstance happened. So, so we're certainly glad glad for that. So, or else I'm sure we would be talking. But maybe something different because you sound like a pretty remarkable person, but not with regards to uh, the association for uh, that you're representing mm-hmm. now. So, look, Indigenous entrepreneurship is the fastest growing segment of entrepreneurship in Canada, and I find that so cool. What what more needs to be done though to ensure that the First Nations, Métis, and Intuit people really start to succeed in their entrepreneurial journey? Talk about barriers. Uh, you know what's what strengths they're finding all those sorts of elements that that make the uh, the 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 soup mm-hmm. if i could call it of things that are special that that uh, we need to address or or maybe uh, are are being looked after yeah, right now so i think what people need to realize you know when you think about the barriers i can start there um that First Nations, Métis, and Inuit people face in terms of their entrepreneurial journeys. One, you know, would be what most entrepreneurs face, which is access to mentors. The second one, I think, is probably a really big one. And there's a number of unique challenges, which is access to capital. So mentorship, I think, um, certainly thinking about my own experience and my work through the professional association, so many um, Aboriginal entrepreneurs and Aboriginal professionals in Canada lack um, what is known as like social capital, right? So that meaning, you know, if people let's say wanted to have a job, they might ask their parents or, and they might ask their colleagues and then they'll send in resumes and they'll get a job kind of that through that way, through their network. A lot of Aboriginal entrepreneurs and professionals kind of right from the get-go don't have that same type of network that people have. Now that can sound like a really small thing and like you're able to go out and build it, but it's important to remember that you don't know what you don't know. And so a lot of uh, Indigenous entrepreneurs like need to figure that out from scratch. Um, And that has a whole host of implications in terms of like, if you're a small business owner, you know, the importance of having a good accountant, um, you know, of having a good lawyer, having these people who can help guide you to really build a business to success. So right from the get go, you kind of have a little bit more to figure out. Um, And the second thing is access to capital. So there's a number of unique challenges for First Nations people in particular, especially if you're situated on a reservation uh, in terms of getting maybe your first small business loan that if you... um, were not living on a reservation, your circumstances would be a little bit different just in terms of having a securitized loan as one example. And then the other thing is uh, when you look at some of the larger pools of funds, certainly there's a CAPE fund, uh, which is an investment fund specifically geared towards Indigenous entrepreneurs in Canada. But those are looking at like the large multi-million dollar investments. So when you think of like the small to kind of mid-market um, access to capital for First Nations entrepreneurs or Indigenous entrepreneurs, that is uh, a, a bit more of a difficult um, space. Now, in terms of what they bring, and I could probably talk at length um, and, and take up the entire show about this, I, I, I feel <laughs> so passionately about the diversity and resiliency within the Indigenous community in Canada. And what do I mean by that? I mean, 
if you think about, and you don't have to know much about indigenous history in Canada, but even if you know some uh-huh. things, you would know that native people in Canada have been through a lot and not just one generation, uh-huh. but several generations over hundreds of years. And yet here they are today, still practicing their culture, speaking their language. And like you said, are the fastest growing segment of entrepreneurship in Canada. Now that tells me a couple of things. One, it tells me that they're incredibly resilient people and that they have a lot of of growth and potential. I think that's an incredibly exciting thing when we think about, you know, um, all of the things happening in Canada, how we have an aging baby boomer population, how we uh, have these skill set gaps and how the indigenous population can really be um, this high potential. It is this high potential segment. So um, when I think about even my own journey and I think about how certain organizations or people and this goes back to mentorship, took a, what would have probably been considered a risk, but maybe a calculated bet on my potential when they did not have to, I would not be where I am today. Uh, The Aboriginal Professional Association of Canada certainly would not uh, exist without these types of people um, betting on that potential. So my hope is that more and more people will look at Indigenous entrepreneurs and not just say, okay, like, you know, ask the usual questions, but kind of take a more of a macro view, understand where they came from, understand the unique set of circumstances and challenges that they had, and then like think about that trajectory and take a bet on that potential. Love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. Wow. 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 So how does, how does uh, kind of traveling to over 20 countries across six continents uh, impact at you? Um, and, uh, and obviously of course what the work is, the work you're working on. Yeah, so I think for me, like traveling, especially when I was in university, and that was a while ago now, was for me a way to open my eyes and then start to really see how big the world is and how large uh-huh. the opportunities are. And I think that's true for anyone who's done you know, any traveling. You start to see um, the world. And for me, it was connecting with Indigenous people in Australia and New Zealand and Peru, uh. seeing that strength and, and, and starting to feel my own strength, um, you know, being a Dene woman from northern Saskatchewan. And I wanted to understand more of that journey. So it was like, even though I was traveling around the world, in a sense, it really inspired me to take a look inward and, and kind of be more... Um, thoughtful about like remembering where I came from and what's the land, what's, what's my traditional territory? What, what are the stories of my people and like understanding that journey? So that I think was an important thing. And then more recently, I've done a lot of travel even in the last two years here at business school, um, I've traveled uh, to 15 countries. I've traveled to all six continents again, um, met with you know business leaders, government officials. And I think it, it just made me realize that even though I grew up in a small community of 800 people for most of my life, you know, people everywhere in the world are just like figuring it out and nobody uh-huh. needs to give you permission to kind of <laughs> do anything. You uh-huh. just gotta, gotta go out there and do it. And the ones that 
that are, you know, you might look and like are in the front page of newspapers and are seemingly doing all these amazing things. Like when you just go talk to them, they're like, I'm just trying to figure it out as well. And <laughs> yeah. that kind of like makes me feel good because I, I, I feel like I don't have it figured out. Right. I'm like still just trying to work and that's what we're all doing. But I think there's this misconception of the people who are in the front page of the newspapers have somehow like you know, arrived or they, they've got it figured out. But when you talk to them, you know, they're just like anyone else. Um, so it's kind of provided a set, like an inner confidence and inner peace that I'm just like, you know, trudging along and, and that's totally normal. Isn't that so crazy, you know, because uh, in, in the entrepreneurial world, it's the same sort of thing as entrepreneurs. And, uh, you know, I, I consider you to be definitely an entrepreneur and what you have created. You, you always look to others uh, mm. as to having the success and you never kind of look inward to say, gee, I'm doing a pretty good job myself. And you actually beat yourself up more than anything else. But yeah, when, when, when ultimately you start to dialogue, everybody's going through a, you know, up and down um, uh, a journey. And, um, you know, I interviewed uh, somebody just a second ago uh, before we came on here and they were talking about the ecogram. I don't know if that's the way you call it, but, you know, the, you put the the, uh, the heart things on your on your, on your your chest and it can, is that what they call it, an eco, echogram? Um, oh, or the machine know. goes up and down, shows you where the heart rate is. I know what you're talking about, yeah. Yeah, I can't don't know what it's, it's, it's yeah. just a terminology. Yeah, as long as you and I yeah. understand, that's yeah. what's important. It doesn't matter about the thousands of other people, and that's cool. <laughs> but, you know, and he was talking about, you know, when it flatlines, mm-hmm. it means you're dead. And when it moves up and down, it means you have mm-hmm. life. And why we just can't accept that. Yeah. So uh, I love that you've uh, you've, uh, you've you've expressed that to us. So, so let's kind of venture over to uh, the Aboriginal Professional Association of mm-hmm. Canada. Um Gabrielle, tell us about that. Uh, you know, what what does it do? Um, where where is it primarily making impact? Uh, it's an it's important work you're doing, I'm sure, and I want to hear more. Yeah, about so it. I I think to really understand it, I think I can talk a little bit about how it started. So this was 2011 was the year that it really started to gain momentum, and. From my perspective, I was a first-generation student um, to go through university, and I had just landed this great job working in finance in Toronto, so I moved across the country. And I was in my early 20s, and people, you know, if you think of all the a lot of the social services geared towards Indigenous people in Canada, they would kind of check, off, check me off and say, you know what, she made it. She has an education, mm. she has a good job, like she's good. But from my perspective, being in my early 20s, um, I was just starting my career, right? I was just starting in banking. Um, I had every aspiration of becoming the CEO one day, so I had a lot of uh, ambition. <laughs> yeah. But I had like no idea how to navigate it. This goes back to the point I made earlier around social capital, right? Like even if I wanted to ask my dad, like, how do I think about, you know, managing upwards and how does, and like, and he would want to, you know, help me. He's never really had a manager before. He hasn't worked in corporate Canada before. So as much as he would love to help me, he would not be able to really even know where to start. So I lacked a lot of guidance and mentorship and I had every ambition of, you know, growing within the organization and layered on top of that, I had already been on this amazing journey about learning about myself as a a young Dene woman and I didn't want to drown in a city of strangers. So what I wanted was like a safe space to continue on my indigenous journey and learning about my community and, and continue to connect and gather 
Well, at the same time, you know, feeding my ambition on, in the professional setting and, and um, learning more professional skill sets. And there wasn't an organization that did the two of those things. So that was really the the light right. bulb moment. You know, the idea, we all have ideas. And for me, that was just kind of like, a, oh, this should exist. And I looked on Google couldn't find anything. And I'm like, Oh, that's interesting. And honestly, that, that would have been it if it wasn't for a conversation. And you talk about these like different trajectories. If it wasn't for a coffee that I took, um, with a guy who ended up becoming my co-founder and we hadn't met each other before, but we were connected through this, um, uh, network called, uh, the diversity program by civic action in Toronto. And I told him about this idea converse that point of the conversation probably lasted like two minutes. He emailed me afterwards (laughs) and he said, you should, you should like consider doing this. I mean, fast forward six months after that coffee, we had our launch event. We had like a hundred people, uh, at our first event. And then, where was that at? What part of Canada? So this was, was that all in? in Toronto. Because originally, oh, Toronto, you know, okay. we had kind of thought, I, I knew it might exist in Toronto. We had no idea what the Aboriginal professional numbers were. People would ask us all the time, like, what does success look like? And we're like, we don't even know how big our market <laughs> is. So it could be like 10 of us in a room <laughs> once a month, and that's totally cool. Um, but we, we addressed, and this kind of goes to any, you know, startup, uh, in, in the world, but we addressed a market that had been largely ignored who had a need and we were providing them value. So we had a goal of having a hundred, um, registered members by the end of our first year, we reached that within our first few months. Um, and we wanted to just originally were thinking this would be something that, that was just in Toronto. It evolved and it quickly became a national association. Um, so what what the organization does from a very high level, it just supports Indigenous professionals through network development, professional development, um, and uh, networking opportunities. Uh, and layered in on top of that is, of course, um, an ability to gather and connect with the Indigenous community and keep those cultural ties strong. And you're a full-time student doing all this. So the organization, um, so I had run it well, while I was working in finance up until 2013. And now at that point it was growing and I had to look at myself in the mirror and say, I was essentially doing two full-time jobs. And what was easily the most like difficult decision of my life I decided to uh, resign my role in banking to run the nonprofit organization full time in early Mm -hmm. 2014. Now, at that time, I wasn't going to give myself a salary. So I was going to be running purely on my savings account. And I kind of knew my runway was personally. And I thought, you know what, I'm just going to like try this. And if it doesn't work out, I can always go back to banking. I can always like get another job. I'll figure it out. But I feel like the time is now for me to run this thing full time. Right. So that was 2014 right. and we ended up, you know, growing the organization even more, scaling it more across Canada. In two at the end of that year is when I was accepted into business school. And so I gave myself some runway at about six months worth of runway, um, to find my replacement. So I, did the board succession. So we had some longtime volunteers who stepped up and became the co-presidents of the board, um, grew the volunteer base. And then I hired, um, somebody to be an executive director of the association in 2015. So, and that's when I stepped away to do business school full time. 
so the so I did all the succession planning um, before going to business school. Smart. Yeah. Smart, smart. So when you say business school, is is the Harvard Kennedy School, is that business school as, uh, as well as this, what you're doing with Stanford? So at, I'm doing my MBA. So that's the business portion at the Stanford Graduate School yeah. of Business, which is like a highly, highly entrepreneurial school, as you can imagine, here in the heart of Silicon Valley, mm-hmm. um, which is a big reason why I wanted to come here to Stanford. Now, the Harvard Kennedy School is primarily like a policy and like civic leadership institution. So a lot of the work there is more focused on leadership and government. Um, yeah. Wow. So it's like, for me, these are like these two spaces that I just think are so incredibly important. Um, of course. Any entrepreneur will kind yes. of understand that you're just going to naturally touch up against government and policy, whether you want to or not. And so for me, um, understanding that more and, and thinking about how to how to shape that um, moving forward has been something super interesting to me. So that's why I wanted to, to do both of them. Um, so so after you're done this, can we see you heading back to the uh, to the Aboriginal Professional Association? I think so. I think. Um, you know, I think to having done all the succession for that organization, for me, I'm thinking about, you know, what's next. And what I've realized over the last several years is I have a pretty big passion and knack for like just starting things and building mm-hmm. momentum and getting a team and, you know, doing build, just building things. Like I had uh, created an investment fund while I was here at Stanford. Um, and like that, that's something that I really enjoy. So for me, I'm thinking about and doing a bit of work right now and like, what, what is it that I want to do next? Um, and the professional association, like is in such good hands and, you know, I'm here if they need me and they know that. So, Mm. you know, it's like, what, what's the next thing that I can work on and and help build and then hopefully find a team of people who can, you know, carry on its legacy. Gabrielle, is that what you would suggest is the, uh, the number one strategy that really helped you grow the Aboriginal Professional Association of Canada, the, 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 the focus in on team, right people on the right place on the bus? Is that fair to say? Or is there something else that you would say, no, this was the nugget that, that really helped me and helped us grow the foundation. Yeah. So I would say there's, there's a couple of things and the first and foremost, of course, is like the team having really smart people dedicated towards the idea like that, that is like the difference between starting and like stopping, like not even doing anything. Right. It's like having the right people. And Uh so we certainly, and and my co-founder, um, his name's Richard Wilshire. Like he is somebody who will be a mentor to me for the rest of my life, who I hold in the highest regard. Like if he said, Gabrielle, I'm working on a project and I would love for you to work on it. I wouldn't even hesitate. Like he's somebody I would work with, work for, um, and, and so that kind of like team and like secret sauce of having a great founding team, I think is hmm. like super important. And we were really lucky to have that with each other. And, uh-huh. you know, um, so I think that is first and foremost, an important thing. And then I also was really fortunate to have good mentors who had started nonprofit organizations before who kind of like gave me a bit of a warning and saying like a lot of nonprofits and you see this a lot they become so founder dependent because you're the uh-huh. face and you're the story to what makes the organization come alive and why people will fund you, believe in you, why people will join. And so I had that advice super early in the process. And so I was thinking, you know, 
who are the people that we're going to bring on early and how can we like train them to take this over so that, you know, this is something that I can do and start, but it's also not going to be the only thing I do, um, within the next decade. So that I think was super important. And then the other thing, and I'll, I'll say that this is also incredibly important to what helped us, um, grow and win was, and this came from Richard was how like start small, think big and grow quickly. Because I think a lot of people, and we certainly talk about this a lot at Stanford, is like you, you try to start an idea and you're like, is it a billion dollar idea or is it like a really big? And if you start to think about that before you've even done anything, it becomes easily to like discourage yourself and say like, oh, this is probably not something worth pursuing. So we just thought small. We're like, you know what, let's just do some focus groups. Let's see if this is a need. Okay, let's have a little launch event and that could be it and that could be the end of it and at least we tried starting small um and i I certainly i think was the i I thought a lot more small than uh richard but and he but he was the one who thought big he was (laughs) like no no no, this can be national we're gonna like there's gonna be a great board of advisors we're gonna have staff it's gonna be really big and i was like richard you're crazy but (laughs) the two of us and this is the guy you now follow you will now follow off a a cliff right but i think that that ambition like and that's he had an ambition and he saw something where i couldn't see it and like it did end up becoming a national association we did end up hiring staff within our first year um and i think he was the the engine so that kind of allowed us to think that big, but also the idea of growing quickly, right? Getting momentum, getting the growth numbers, showing that you're onto something interesting that helped with getting, um, with the fundraising and helping build a critical mass to get more members. Um, I think like having that really, like we were both from the private sector as well, like starting this nonprofit. And I think it brought a level of discipline, um, and just thinking about how we, we were going to grow it. Love it. I got to ask you this question, and this isn't on the script you have in front of you, but because of your journey, because of your focus on team, because of your focus in on on delegation, getting out of the way, uh, because of your focus on business school training, Mm -hmm. um, because of your focus on building an investment fund, what do you think of the word Nonprofit as it relates to uh, uh, building success, a successful vision and culture within an organization such as yours or any other, you know, quote unquote nonprofit? Mm, I think that is a very good question. What the, what business school has solidified for me is like if anybody wants to get leadership experience and understand how to build a culture and how to be the kind of leader that people will naturally follow, I would encourage you, and this is even if you're working full time, if you have a company, I would encourage you to go out there and manage a team of volunteers, right? Go, go out there and manage people who are gifting you their time who don't have to be there. And at any point in time, like they could just say, okay, I'm done. Like peace. Right. You have to one, like build, like you said, a culture or like build a vision first Uh, and foremost that people are going to buy into. Then you have to understand their needs and wants and, and what they're good at and align them with that vision and pieces of work that'll provide meaningful value with the organization 
provide them coaching if they ever, you know, kind of go off track or, or need a little bit of help, which I think everybody generally does. So you, you're going to learn some coaching skills. Um, and then how do you build a culture that people, and this take, takes practice. Like we certainly weren't there within our first year. It did take a lot of like molding, but like, and how do you build a culture that people will say, yeah, I like spending time with this team. This is like an organization I enjoy being with when you can do that. And if you, you just think about like leadership and managing a company, ideally all of the employees that you pay would hopefully say the same things. I enjoy working here. I really enjoy working for this person. I think I'm doing meaningful work that's contributing to the momentum of this company. Like that's what everybody wants. And you learn those skills when you're managing a volunteer team. So as difficult as it can be, um, it was easily and has been like the most rewarding experience. And I'm so happy that I was able to have that early. Wow. Thank you for, first of all, thank you for recognizing that that's an important question or a good question. I forget what it was, but I really do think that there are a lot of times that people really kind of, and particularly working in charities, nonprofits, or whatever you want to call it, hang their strategy on that one word. And so subsequently things such as innovation (laughs) really don't become a paramount discussion in their existence, let alone their growth. And so uh, thank you for once saying it was, sorry, not for once, but thank you for saying that that was a great question because I think it's very important because such organizations such as yours are so important, but ultimately you got to pay the bills. You got to move forward in, in a sense of, uh, of strengthening yourselves. And so, uh, so again, uh, it's, it's a, I think a cool conversation as we head into the future. I'd like to eliminate it in totally entirely basis like, because everybody's got to be for profit at some level in order to uh, keep moving forward. So, um, Look, uh, the Canada the Canada startup community, Gabrielle, is often criticized for being too homogenous and focus on young white males, and. Uh, I see a lot of diversity starting to happen, and I think that uh, you see it less and less in that direction, but we've got a lot of work to do to focus on building a more uh, diverse and inclusive uh, startup and scale-up community. You know, how, how, can, how can entrepreneurs, you've got an audience here right mm-hmm. now of thousands and thousands of people that are listening to your journey, can you, can you give us some golden nuggets as to how we can help to, to uh, include you – know, you know, the include diversion, but, uh, but make it inclusive, I guess, if that's, uh, if that makes sense. Yeah. So I, I, I believe that we shouldn't think about diversity and inclusion as like a check the box exercise, meaning like, oh, we have a woman on our team, box check. Oh, we have an Aboriginal person on our team, check that box. Like if, you, if that's the way people are thinking about diversity, then I think that you have some more work to do. I'll, I'll leave with a couple of thoughts, and, and these are notes that I've gotten here from Stanford. Like I've been fortunate at yeah. the Graduate School of Business here <laughs> yeah. at Stanford. Right. I've taken a class with Eric Schmidt, like the former CEO of Google. I've had yes. um, guest yeah. lectures. You know, the CEO of Snapchat yeah. was in. Um, the co-founders of okay. Airbnb. Like we we've been so fortunate here to talk about people who have grown multi billion dollar businesses, and what every single one of them say are two things. One, and we've already touched on them, is the team. And the second thing is the culture. So thinking about the team, I I remember somebody said in one of my classes, the difference between a $100 million business and a billion dollar business is getting um, 
you know, A plus players or A minus players. If you want to build a billion dollar business, you need to get the best people as quickly as possible. They'll create a critical mass because the best people are attracted to the best people. And then that's how you really start to grow the organization. So when you think about your founding team, um, most people kind of just look to people who are around them. Any study will show you that when you have more diversity of thought and experiences mm. on your team, that team is going to produce superior results. Um, and so it, it just makes good business sense to really think about the team. The second thing is like, if you have a company, like let's say you're a startup and you just raised your seed round and you have your first few employees. If let's say I'm a woman and I'm going to maybe think about joining your company. And I look at like the first 10 employees, like you said, are very homogenous and they might be all, um, you know, non, uh, visible minorities. They might be all men. I'm going to say like, is that a place that like, will really, do they really accept me? Like, will they really think, uh, accept the ideas and things that I bring to the table? So, if you're homogenous in the beginning, you can certainly expect to grow and be homogenous as you grow. And I think that disturbs, um, you know, building a good business. Now, the second thing I mentioned is culture. And we talked, mm -hmm. we've already talked kind of at length about that. But how, if you want to build an inclusive culture, like you really need to think about that from the very beginning. And again, thinking about who are your first who's your founding team? Um, what can I do to actually not just say that I think diversity is, but really show that it is. And when people feel that they can bring their whole selves to work, uh -huh. they will give so much more effort to you, for you, for the team. And that's what it takes right. to win. So what I would say to entrepreneurs is like, think about the team and think about the culture, but think about having, uh, diversity and inclusion as an integral, like spoke in that wheel, not a check the box exercise. Mm, I think that's brilliant. I love it. And it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's continuous also. I like that think about culture. It's not just the proverbial, you know, actions speak louder than words, right? And so you've got to put that in place. Gabrielle, um, are we going to see you back in Canada? I hope so. I hope so too. Yeah, yeah. So I, I have really one more. Do. I have one more year of school left. Um, yes. But you know, every time I travel back home just to visit family and friends, like I, it's just like something different when you land in the airport, <laughs> yeah, like anywhere yeah, in Canada. I'm like, I'm home. And yeah. I'm like, yeah. And we're glad it's your home. Um, you know, I, I used to, I was fortunate enough when, when I was younger too, to travel to Europe for a bit. And I, I just wish, uh, and I think you would agree with me that it was mandatory that every kid in school at, at the end of graduation, uh, that they had to go spend at least a month somewhere else beyond North America. Uh, because it, one, of course, gave great insight and, and value of that experience, but also an appreciation of home also, because, uh, I concur with you. It, it does feel good when you walk in that airport mm. and you're, uh, you're, you're, you're really connecting with something that touches your heart. Mm -hmm. So, uh, well, Gabrielle, you're doing really epic work. I, I can't thank you enough for taking your busy schedule and talking to us today. I, I know entrepreneurs and startups across the country are, are going to have leaned in and they're going to learn a ton from, from your leadership and uh, keep, uh, keep, keep in touch. Keep telling us what you're doing. I, I know that startup Canada has a lot to learn from you. And I, I think you could probably take a lot too from Startup Canada. Yeah, we have over two hundred thousand members now that that uh, that can support you and with the hard work that you're doing with the with the, with whatever you're going to go in the future. So thank you again so much and uh, have an epic epic day. Yeah, you too. Thanks for having me. 
Thank you for joining us this week on the Startup Canada podcast, a show dedicated to unlocking the entrepreneurial potential of every entrepreneur with access to inspiring stories and tangible lessons to help you run your business. Want access to resources and support to grow your business? Visit startupcan.ca for the latest startup community news and upcoming events like our popular hashtag Startup Chats on Twitter every Wednesday and Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern. Till next week, I'm Rivers Corbett leaving you with a sneak peek of next week's episode. Hi, this is Peter Stastny, Project Manager of Small Business Services, SEDEC. Hi, this is Carole Cotton, General Director at ICT Techno Center. And you are listening to the Startup Canada Podcast with Rivers Corbett. So um, I'm going to ask this next question for uh, Peter and then the next one I have for you, Carol. Um, you know, one of the things that I see a lot is entrepreneurs who are looking for experts, they're looking for mentors, they're looking for help along the way, but the matches just aren't happening. Can you can you help us kind of understand, uh, and this is, a, this is a coast-to-coast-to-coast audience, and so this is more of a, a tapping into your expertise. How do you ensure that the best match is created Created in that relationship from uh, well from the from the very beginning because it's it's really about a dating game and it's not just about a a one night stand if I could call it that. Sure, I, let me take a shot at this first. We we were very hard on two aspects to create that match. The first one is focus. We use a tool called Growth Wheel, and what we really do is we constantly tell entrepreneurs focus. What do you need to be working on today to move forward? So once we understand that, if somebody says, "Well, I need to work on sales," that's not an answer. Is it production? Is it pricing? Is it branding? Once we have focus, then we have worked to also build up expertise and links to experts and understand what those experts goals are and then we can properly match because we've got a tight focus on both sides I love it. I love it. And you got to have the tool. You got to have that triage opportunity. I mean, it's like going into ultimately it's to a hospital, right? You got to figure out what's the, what is the problem? What's the opportunity you're pursuing and make sure the correct connection. You don't want to go see an optometrist if there's something wrong with your foot. So um, I love that reference point. Um, and in the guest base, can you give us an overview uh, of what's going on with the IT, ICT sector, you know, digital technology? How is it helping small business? And I know we, we've talked about it being present, but can you give us some 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 hacks some uh, some examples of what you're seeing with with businesses and self-employed entrepreneurs in, in your area yeah of course you see in on the gas PZ there we we have a, a word that we say you know who needs an office in Montreal we can do, <laughs> when you can do the same work and live by the sea it's God's country right exactly exactly yeah. no the the ICT sector on gas PZ it's uh, it's very uh, growing. Uh, we have more than uh, I would say 80 professional uh, working and making them their living out of ICT technology. Uh, we do have people in uh, programming website. Uh, 
uh, all those uh, social media experts. We do have people in uh, virtual reality. We have people in, in all kinds of uh, profession on ICT. And most of them are small businesses. Most of them, what they do is they're, because uh, you see, we have a small uh, possibility of business on the gas pickles. And uh, most of them are going back to, they, 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 they do make some trip. They go for a week in Quebec, Montreal, get some get some uh, contract and then come back uh, in Gaspésie and do their contract. And basically they do that by distance. They keep reaching their uh, clients by distance with uh, high internet technology. And most of them are doing a good living on the Gaspésie uh, territory with, uh, with the ICT. Of course, we could benefit of better cell uh, coverage or better uh, access to uh, high-speed internet, but it's uh, we're getting there. We're getting there uh, with all those program uh, financing uh, infrastructure. There, we uh, we're going to be uh, pretty good by 2021.